Welcome to All About Data on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jory Heckman. Thanks for joining me this week on All About Data, a conversation with chief data officers and the people who are making data work better in government. On today's episode, the State Department is setting five-year goals to promote diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility across its workforce. To track progress on those goals, the department now has disaggregated workforce data on nearly every one of its offices. For more on what it took to get this workforce data in good working order, we're joined by the State Department's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Winstanley. Ambassador, thanks for joining me. Tell me a little bit more about that. How has the department made that more accessible to leadership teams and employees to do a lot of the things that we want to see done? That is a great place to start. I certainly knew before I started the job that nothing was going to make sense if we didn't know where we are. How do you judge progress? How do you judge that you're making improvements without that data? And certainly we had been very, very conservative in the past, not only with how we collected it, but how we shared it. And so I think you would find anyone on Capitol Hill from any party complaining about the lack of transparency, shall we say, from the Department of State with regard to the workforce. So that was where I needed to start, as I think I mentioned to you. And I will smilingly say, since I have certainly brought my colleagues and partners along in the building. But my first reaction that I got when I returned to the department was that, you know, I couldn't have the data because of privacy reasons. And so that had to be overcome and was. And so we worked with our data experts in HR, global talent management, in MSS with our chief data officer. We brought some expertise onto my staff and really sliced and diced and crunched the numbers. And then with the secretary's full support, we said, okay, this is not just for us. This is for everyone because this is a whole, frankly, whole of government effort, but certainly within our organization that everybody needs to be able to see where we're starting so they can judge where we're going and whether we're getting there. All right. That's no small feat. How does that workforce data allow the agency to drill into things like retention and attrition? So that leads us to our next step. Once you get the data, what do you do with it? So looking at it, what it allows us to see is where we're doing well, which frankly is at the bottom of our department, or I should say the lower levels of the department, but entry level. And then we see as people go up the ladder, it thins out. And I may have made the observation when you and I spoke last, but certainly as I looked at the data, it struck me hard. And the bottom line is women and minorities do not lose brain power as we go up the ladder. So something else is going on there that suddenly the upper ranks become far more homogeneous with regard to gender and with regard to racial background as we describe race in the United States. So then we have to figure out what's happening. And different groups drop off at different levels. So we have to see where's that hard barrier? What's happening that Asian Americans get here, but then out immediately after, or Hispanic Americans get here, or women get here, or African Americans get here. And so that's when we start to work on the barrier analysis, drilling down deep to see exactly where that bottleneck thins so that we can start asking important questions. How are we advertising these positions? 
Where are we advertising the positions? Are we getting the right people interested? Are they following through on the application? And if not, why not? How are they making this certification to see, did they bring in the right sort of background to be eligible, competitive? And who's doing the selecting? And so we've worked very hard in this last year to put in place a best practice. We're not fully there yet, but we've made huge strides, which is not having a single decision maker, not having a single decision maker. And I tell the story myself of when I was staffing my office, as you're looking at people to hire, one person that I was thinking about for my deputy, a brilliant person, incredibly capable, but very much like me. And I realized while I would love to have her and we'd like click and speak shorthand, that that's not what the office needs. The office needs someone who doesn't think or have the same background as I do, but to fill the gaps in my thinking and how I see things, to add to the whole of our ability to come after with recommendations and opportunities to do things differently, and that means a diverse office. So this office is the example of what the department should be looking at, and I would say it is the incredible amount of diversity as well as equity in our office that has made us so successful for this year. You walk in my office and you say, oh, oh, this is what it should look like because there's all kinds of folks in here with very different backgrounds. And I can tell you there are very lively discussions in the office because we don't always agree on the way forward. So it's a spirited debate, but we pull it out at everyone and the equity is there because even though I don't always love it, everyone has a full voice in the office and feels empowered to speak up and give their recommendations. And so we've gotten a lot of good things done in this last year, last year and a few months. Setting the tone for the rest of the department, that's great to hear. One of, I guess, several challenges with getting that good workforce data is, my understanding is it's really a lot of self-reported data from employees And I can Mm -hmm. understand there might be some hesitancy with them filling out that form or checking those boxes. Tell me, what can you and your office do or the department more broadly to make employees feel comfortable self-reporting that data in the first place? Well, the first thing we have to do is make sure everyone understands how the data is used and how the data is stored and that the demographic data is not associated with an individual name number one. So we've done a lot of effort at communicating that, at amplifying that message, making sure people understand that. Number two, we have been exhorting them to identify. And I tell the very sad story of my 30 plus years in the department and I had not identified, I had not gone in and done it myself. So I knew if I hadn't done it, a whole lot of people haven't done it. And so I fessed up, I hadn't done it, but I've done it now and that other people need to. The third thing we do is give an example of why it matters. We use our colleagues with disabilities. They are particularly hesitant to put that data in, not understanding that it's kept separate, number one, and number two, concerned that people might discriminate, might be reluctant to hire if they understand that they're hiring somebody with a disability who might need a reasonable accommodation. It might be more trouble. It might be just more to think about, you know, that you have to build it into your planning from the very beginning. And so people have been reluctant to identify with having a disability. And I make the very real point, which is if we are spending, you know, $5 million on 
reasonable accommodations or making things accessible, and we're doing that for you know 150 people with disability, that's not a bad ratio of money to employee. But if in fact we really have you know a thousand people with disabilities, then that isn't enough money. And we can't make the case for spending more unless we know we need to spend more. So it has a real connection with dollars spent on making this organization equitable and accessible. So that's the point I've been making for people with disabilities and went in and, and filled out my own. And something that a, a colleague observed to me that just really hit home, which is that having a disability is something we can all look forward to as we grow older. Things are going to fail in our bodies. And so making sure that it's accessible, that we can reach our potential and do our work to our best ability as long as possible is good for everybody in the organization. So that's a point that we've made. And then, of course, how we use the number, making sure that people understand you're not alone. We've also undertaken a project to expand the categories that people can identify in. So if you are LGBTQAI+, we were adding additional categories because some of our employees said, I check a box, but my box isn't there. So we've been working with the Census Bureau, with CDC to expand those boxes so that people can understand. Are you a first generation American? First year college student? What part of the country do you come from? All these things are important to reassure the American people that our representatives truly reflect our nation. And everybody can get behind that. And I don't care what your politics are, where you come from, everybody wants to see this country fully and appropriately, realistically represented at all ranks. We're speaking with Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, the State Department's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. We're going to take a short break, but we'll continue our conversation when we return. I'm Jory Heckman, and you're listening to All About Data on Federal News Network. Data, we're speaking with Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, the State Department's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. I know the department broadly is looking at the future of work as much of the federal workforce is. I'm kind of curious here as the department contemplates this workforce flexibilities plan that is in the works, how can that advance some of the DEIA principles that we've been talking about? Well, I believe it's going to help with everyone. I personally prefer to be in the office. I'm an extrovert. I like to see my people. I like to talk to them. I like to pop in their offices and have them pop into mine. So that's my personal. But as you can see, we're doing this remotely. And that flexibility actually adds to our productivity. So even though it's not my personal inclination and I'm old school, it's like, but I'm convinced, you know, I, I, I love that we're doing here. We're in three different places and yet getting important work done. 
I think every person in the department has come to that realization one way or the other. Obviously, for those who are dealing in classified information each day, the flexibility isn't going to be there. But we can do a lot more than we have in the past. And, and we're going to. I think it's going to help with our retention for women, for people who are certainly in the middle or lower ranks because childcare is heinously expensive in this country. And I don't want anyone who you know has to work to provide childcare. And our old rule said you couldn't be remote if you had a child at home as well or had workers coming to the office that you had to be able to give it the full attention that you not full attention because you're giving it full attention but i i have a staff that is completely 100 percent hybrid i have two people i have two people who were fully remote and i was reluctant i'll be honest with you i was reluctant for that fully remote component but they were just as and for some cases even more productive than me and others who came into the office on a regular basis. And one of those benefits was because I do keep crazy hours of sleep and emailing that one of my fully remote people, when I was exhaling at home and kind of reviewing the email and thinking about things and ideas coming and sending out emails for the next day, honest to God, for the next day was the intent, she'd respond that evening. And we could have a great discussion about what we wanted to accomplish. And that was because her workday fit her hours. And whereas I didn't need her at eight o'clock in the morning because I'm in meetings, you know, I'm doing other things like now, I don't need to talk to anyone. But I did, those conversations were useful in the evening. And so I have some people in the office, some people in the office that I can do evening work with. And then we have people in other parts who are, who are morning people. And so it frankly has added to the productivity. And I think we're going to be moving very smartly in that direction because it works. All right. Well, maybe in a similar vein here, I'm curious what the department in this strategy is looking at in terms of making the agency a workplace that is more accessible for employees with disabilities. Yeah, we have been working with our Office of Accommodations, with the Undersecretary, with our Administrative Bureau, you know, on looking at the building, what works. We've been working on adding bathrooms that are non-gendered. I can tell you I ran around the building as a young officer in fury because there seemed to be more male bathrooms than female bathrooms. And I don't think there was ever a time after the 1950s that there were more men than women in the building, particularly when you think about all the support staff, uh, which tend to be heavily female. So we've made some changes in that. We are looking at accessibility issues. Um, we are trying to put the information out so that people understand. People like me, you know, I have people in the office who need accommodations. And I have to tell you, when I first learned about it, I had a moment of panic. I mean, this, this stuff is real. And I had to get informed so that I can understand, oh, this is not such a big deal. There are support systems in place within the organization. I just need to reach out to them. I just need to make sure I understand what everybody in my part of the organization needs to do their best work. And so getting information about available support, accommodations, making sure that when things don't work, people know where to go, or that supervisors understand that up to a certain amount of money, they don't need to go to the Office of Accommodations, that they can make decisions in and of themselves as if it's below a certain amount of money. And I think we're trying to set up a $1,000 pot that 
if somebody needs, you know, a, a different kind of screen or a different kind of chair or a standing desk or any number of things, we don't need to go to some special office. This is something that we as supervisors can say, yes, right, you need it, get it, and let's move on, get you to work. To change gears here a little bit, you, of course, know firsthand that the Foreign Service and, and work overseas, you know, that is, you know, a calling and a thing that is, you know, inherently challenging. It's the kind of thing that people do make sacrifices to do. I imagine in the context of the strategy, there is some looking at maybe not all of those sacrifices need to happen to join the Foreign Service. Are there ways in which looking through this strategy, the agency can make the Foreign Service more inclusive, knock down some of those barriers that might prevent the Foreign Service from being more representative of America? Yeah. And, you know, this is a question that I got from the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Reich, and he asked about the geographic spread of diplomats. So I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm from Ohio. I'm from the Midwest. I came to Washington for school, but the reality is that having to come to Washington, D.C., or I think San Francisco to take the oral exam was a huge inhibitor for people like me who did not come from wealth, do not come from wealth, you know, didn't, you know, I was going back and forth from Ohio to D.C. for school. I was on the Greyhound bus going back and forth, and that was a long trip. I couldn't afford to fly back and forth. And so the fact that the pandemic moved us forward more quickly, we were heading that way, but using this sort of technology to do our oral exam is expanding who has access to join us in the first place. So we're already making big changes that are having an impact on geographic diversity and socioeconomic status. You don't have to shut out that increasingly expensive airline ticket and hotel and whatever else in order to take the foreign service exam. So we're starting at our entry levels. As we go up, we certainly are having a hard, strong look at what it means to be worldwide available from the beginning and that impact on people with a wide variety of medical issues and or disabilities. So I think we will be hearing about some changes coming in the not too distant future that also is going to make it easier to come in in the first place. Now getting around the world is always going to be a challenge We've certainly made some improvements since I joined as a young woman, a young married person, but I had my children in the service. And while I would not wish for any family to be separated because it's tough, it's heartbreaking, it has a long-term impact, the reality is every place in the world isn't for everybody and cannot be family-friendly, for instance. And so where that burden lies is something that's going to be made within individual families. When I had to have my family separated, even though I'm the mom and traditionally I would be the one leaving post, you know, with the children, that's not how it worked in my family. My husband was the one that took the children and left post while I stayed in work. And so that's going to be something that couples and families are going to have to look at who, who has to do the tough work. And I can't tell you whether it was tougher to leave with the children or or tougher to stay without them. I don't know who had the worst time. It was terrible for all of us. But that is part of the sacrifice, and I don't see that aspect of it going away. Certainly with education, you know, there were times when I, both of my children had boarding school experiences because places I and my husband felt were important for my service 
A, for the fact that I came with language, that I came with knowledge and the ability to do well for the U.S. government and the American people. Um, it, they weren't places that were family friendly and so, or education friendly. So my children had to go to boarding school. That is not a choice that everybody's going to be willing to make or able to make for any number of reasons, but those options are out there. They've been out there for a while and they will continue to be. So we're trying to improve some things, but the reality of the world is the reality of the world. Places can be difficult, they can be dangerous, they can be not conducive for certain medical conditions and not conducive for young families or for education and decisions are going to have to be made. And that, that's the reality of what we do, which is why the American people should appreciate because these are tough decisions that our military makes and that our foreign service makes. Yeah, that's very eye-opening. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, certainly a lot of thought has been put into this strategy. I'm kind of curious from a next steps perspective, where do we go from here in terms of implementation of the strategy? Yes, well, uh, we have this strategy. It was set up by the Office of Personal Management. It's government-wide. My expectation, and we'll see what happens with my colleagues, is that every agency should be sharing that strategy. That's my view. But anyway, we have ours is public, but we also have an implementation document. You know, it's one thing to have a strategy, but okay, now what? So we have an implementation document that sets our milestones, when we're supposed to accomplish certain things by when. Okay, so that's laid out. Who's got the lead on it? You know, this is a whole of agency, but who's got the lead? As our office tracks our progress, are we turning to GTM and saying, yo, uh, this was supposed to be done by now. Did you put the resources to it? How close are you to accomplishing it? Or what I would prefer to say is, congratulations, you got us there on time, ahead of schedule even. Now we can move on to the next milestone. But we're making it public so that the workforce will know who's responsible for the milestones, which quarter they're supposed to be accomplished by, and what resources were needed, set aside, or need to be identified in order to get it done. And so implementation of that strategic plan is the next big thing. That was Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, the State Department's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. You can find the full interview and more on federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Jory Heckman, and thanks for listening to this episode of All About Data. Thanks for listening to All About Data on Federal News Radio part of Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your favorite podcast app. Search for All About Data on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows.